probably most of us in this room, if not all of us, have had something happen in our lives that was truly a life-changing event. Life-changing events, as you well know, can be positive or negative. If you lose someone who is very close to you, that is often a life-changing event. If you inherit something of great value, that is a life-changing event. If you get in a serious accident, whether you have permanent injuries or not, that is usually a life-changing event. If you witness something that is truly monumental, that can be a life-changing event. Some of these experiences result in life never being the same for us again. It's altered in one way or another. The Apostle Peter had a life-changing experience. It was when the Lord Jesus took him up to the top of a mountain to let him see an almost blinding transformation. We commonly refer to that event as the transfiguration of Jesus, and Peter mentions it in the first chapter of his second letter. Please turn there with me near the end of the New Testament to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our series through this powerful little letter written by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And please follow along as I read verses 12 through 18, though our text will really be verses 16 through 18. But as we often do, I want to back up to get the context in our minds, and we'll read beginning in verse 12. Peter wrote, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we, when we were with him on the holy mountain. If you have been with us for the last few weeks, then you know that the Apostle Peter opened this second letter by encouraging and exhorting his readers to passionately pursue spiritual growth. He knew that his time was short, as he states there in verses 12 through 15, so he wanted to take advantage of the brief time he had left on planet earth to put together something that would have a lasting impact in the lives of others. That is what prompted him to write this second letter. In verses 5 through 11, as we looked at in great detail, Peter set forth the importance and the priority of spiritual growth. He wanted to make sure that his readers did not lapse into a lethargic pattern or habit in their walk with the Lord. Instead, he wanted them to pursue their walk with the Lord in a passionate manner, with intense zeal, 
That is what he has said thus far in the opening part of his letter. Now, in verses 16 through 18, his goal is to give his readers further confidence that their walk with the Lord is not a vain pursuit. Following the Lord is not chasing a rainbow. Following the Lord is not following a fairy tale. Christianity is not a made-up religion or an illusionary fantasy. Biblical Christianity is based on truth and facts and history. This is one of the reasons why the gospel writers give us so many details regarding the birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to make sure that people understand that Christianity is not a man-made religion involving fairy tales and fantasy. Jesus was a historical person who was born at a specific time in history. He was born during the days of Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great. He lived under the Roman Empire and was sentenced to death unjustly by a Roman procurator named Pontius Pilate. He rose from the dead just as he had promised, and there were multiple eyewitnesses that confirmed a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Those are facts. They are historical facts. Christianity is not founded on bizarre tales like so many other religions are. Christianity is not based on the unverifiable experience of some man who supposedly found some golden plates with secret messages from God. It is not based on the unverifiable experience of some man who supposedly took his horse to Jerusalem and took a journey to heaven. Christianity is altogether different than those kinds of tales, those kinds of stories. Christianity is based on facts and truth and historical evidence. That's what Peter wanted to assure his readers of in this brief section consisting of verses 16 through 18. Now, he could have pointed to many facts of history, but he chose to mention an event of history in which he was personally involved, and that was the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter was an eyewitness of that event, along with James and John. So before we consider these verses, let's look at how Matthew described Peter's experience. Go back with me to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew, chapter 17. And we're going to spend quite a little time here because it's imperative that we know the story to appreciate what Peter says about the story over in 2 Peter, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle closest to the Lord Jesus. It's not that Jesus loved them more than he loved the other disciples. And it's not that the others were less important than these three, but Jesus had different purposes for each of his men. We know from chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel that Peter, for example, was the leader among the twelve. Jesus was their Lord and teacher and master and rabbi, but Peter was the first among equals. 
James and John occupied similar roles. Beyond that, we can't say with certainty why Jesus didn't take all of his disciples up on the mountain, but he didn't. He took only Peter, James, and John. The end of this verse says he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. The traditional location of this mountain is called Mount Tabor, or Tabor, but it's not really a high mountain. It is possible that Tabor was the place, but a couple factors actually suggest Mount Hermon in northern Israel. Number one, Mount Hermon is in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and that is the region they were in a few days earlier, according to chapter 16, verse 13. Secondly, Mount Hermon is a high mountain. It receives snowfall in the winter. Uh, There is actually snow skiing that takes place on Mount Hermon. Mount Tabor is not really a high mountain. It's more of a big hill. So it is my guess that this event took place somewhere on Mount Hermon, way up in northern Israel. Verse 2 tells us that when Jesus took these three men there, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. The verb that is translated transfigured here in this verse is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It describes the transformation of a caterpillar into a remarkable butterfly. That's what happened with the appearance of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 that the form or appearance of Jesus as the Messiah was nothing spectacular. He looked like any other man. There was nothing about his appearance that drew people to him. He looked just ordinary. However, on this occasion, his appearance was radically transformed as he gave to Peter, James, and John a glimpse of his kingdom glory. Now, why did Jesus do this? I believe it was to reassure them that he was the Messiah and that he would someday bring in the kingdom. You see, the disciples, by this point, had become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And because they were convinced that he was the Messiah, they understandably assumed that Jesus was going to establish the kingdom that Hebrew Scripture says the Messiah will establish. But Jesus threw them a major curve. Right after Peter's great confession and Jesus' affirmation of that confession in the previous chapter, Jesus told them that he was going to die. Chapter 16, verse 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And we don't have to guess as to what the response of the disciples was when they heard that. Their response was, what? That doesn't fit into the plan. What about the kingdom? Has it been canceled? That's what the disciples were surely thinking. To relieve their minds and reassure them, Jesus gave them this preview of the kingdom. Jesus pulled back the veil of his flesh, as it were, to reveal some of his kingdom, glory, and power. Peter's confession six days prior to this was accurate, 
But neither Peter nor the others realized the full implications of what he said. They needed to understand that Jesus was going to die. But that would not be the end of the kingdom program because he would come back someday in kingdom glory. So Jesus gave them this preview of his kingdom glory. Matthew tells us his face shone like the sun. Everyone in this room has tried to look at or stare at the sun for a period of time. You can't very long. It's blinding. You have to close your eyes, turn away. Matthew tells us his clothes became as white as the light. Other gospel writers tell us that his clothes became whiter than any launderer on earth could possibly brighten clothes. Try to picture such blinding radiance and brilliance. We throw around the word awesome quite a bit today. This is awesome, that is awesome, but this must have been truly awesome. It defies full description, much less full explanation. Verse 3 tells us, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. If you are like me, the first question that comes to mind is, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Easy. Jesus introduced them. Why do you ask such silly questions? I don't know why, how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. We can't say with certainty how they knew because Matthew isn't giving us all the details. Somehow they came to know this was Moses and Elijah. Beloved, I don't think we can appreciate how spectacular this would have been for Peter, James, and John. Think about it. We are talking about Moses and Elijah. These were two of the most revered men in all of their Jewish history. And here they were standing right there in front of them. Moses and Elijah appeared to represent the law and the prophets. The disciples needed to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Not only was he the fulfillment in the sense that he is the Messiah, he was the one to fulfill the prophecies about the death of the Messiah, prophecies that the disciples had blocked out of their minds. Luke tells us that when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on this occasion, the three of them had a conversation about Jesus' death that he would experience in the near future in Jerusalem. Can you imagine this? Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain with Jesus. Now, they had gone many places with Jesus. They had gone all over the land of Israel with Jesus. So just going up on the mountain didn't probably raise any unusual questions to them. He wants to go on the mountain, we go with him on the mountain. He says, come, we come. So they go up on the mountain, and the next thing they know, Moses and Elijah show up. Not only that, Moses and Elijah start talking about the death. Jesus was so, soon going to die in Jerusalem. What, a, what an experience to be privy to that conversation. Just to sit there and hear Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking together. Talking about the death that Jesus would experience. All of this had to be overwhelming to Peter, James, and John. This wasn't everyday kind of stuff. There were three major things in this event that would have been mind-boggling in and of themselves, alone, standing on on its own. 
Number one, Jesus was transfigured into second coming glory. That was radical on its own. Two, Moses and Elijah showed up, standing there, talking. Third, number three, they were talking about Jesus dying soon, something that the disciples did not even realize. Any one of those three would have been monumental by itself. But all three together on this occasion was beyond, beyond overwhelming to Peter, James, and John. Now, when you are overwhelmed and you don't know what to say, you often say something that is dumb. That's what Peter does in the next verse. Verse 4, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Luke 9.33 tells us that Peter spoke, quote, not realizing what he was saying. He didn't even know what he was saying. He was completely bewildered. He was on information experience overload. Back in chapter 16, he had made this great confession about how Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now he is hearing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about Jesus dying in Jerusalem in the near future. That just doesn't go together in his mind. Those concepts don't fit. They're, they're almost mutually exclusive. If Jesus is the Messiah, he's bringing in the kingdom. What is this? He's the Messiah and he's going to die in Jerusalem. Doesn't fit. Doesn't make sense. So he made this strange suggestion. He said, if you wish, I will make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What was he suggesting? There are a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that he was suggesting the same kind of thing the Jewish people did during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would erect, and they still do this, many Jews to this day do this, they, they would erect little booths or temporary dwelling places and would stay in them for the week-long commemoration, the, the week-long holiday. If that's what Peter was suggesting, then that means he was expressing a desire to, to stay there on the mountaintop with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And who can blame him? What a unique experience. Peter didn't want to leave. He wanted to erect some temporary dwelling places so they could stay there. And this experience would last longer. Maybe he could hear more conversations between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That's one possibility as to what he was suggesting. Another possibility is that Peter was suggesting the building of three monuments to commemorate such a glorious event. I chuckle inside when I think about that suggestion because if you have ever been to the land of Israel, then you know that is exactly what has been done throughout the land of Israel. Everywhere you go, there are buildings or monuments or signs to commemorate the things that took place on or near that spot. And after a while, it gets to be overkill. Now, I'm not implying that all monuments are out of place, but, there, but there's a limit. So Peter may have been suggesting the building of some monuments on top of the mountain. But whatever he was suggesting, he needed to be quiet. Verse 5 says, while he was still speaking. 
Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. I don't want to read more into this verse than what is here, but it reads to me like the Father in heaven was telling Peter to be quiet. Why do I say that? Number one, the voice came, the text is clear, the voice came while Peter was still speaking, so it cut into Peter's babbling. In addition, the command that the Father gave about his son was, listen to him. The combination of those two comes across to me like the Father in heaven was telling Peter to be quiet. Peter needed to be listening on this occasion, not talking. Think about it. He was standing in the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, who were having a conversation about the impending death of Jesus. Peter needed to hear that. Peter needed to understand that, and he needed to accept that. At this point, neither he nor any of the other disciples were grasping the fact that Jesus was going to die, even though Jesus had tried to tell them. So Peter needed to be listening, not talking. He was in the very presence of the divine Son of God, who was the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Not only that, Peter, James, and John were in the unique presence of the Father who had descended upon them in a bright cloud. This was the Shekinah glory of God the Father that was overshadowing them. The Shekinah glory goes all the way back to the event when God delivered His people out of Egypt and then His presence manifested itself by, follow, by leading them in the wilderness through the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. That was the Shekinah glory of God. That's what was present on this occasion. This was not a time to talk. This was not a time to give suggestions and take control of the conversation. This was a time to prostrate oneself in humility and submission and worship and teachability. But the three disciples didn't know what to do. And the realization that the Father was right there in that bright cloud absolutely terrified them. They were God-fearing Jews who knew the Hebrew Scripture. They knew that God was altogether holy and unapproachable. They knew that no mortal man could be in his unrestricted presence and live. They knew that. So when they realized that they were not only in the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, but also in the presence of the Father, they collapsed in terrified fear. Verse 6 tells us, And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Beloved, this is always the response. This is always the response when mortal men come into contact with some measure of God's unrestricted presence. This is why today when you hear people tell about supposedly having encounters with God and they just talk to Him while they're shaving, you know it's not real. If, if God meets you in the bathroom and you're shaving, you stop shaving, 
right? I mean, this, th- this is always the response when God, in, people encounter God in some, some unrestricted way. When the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, he responded by saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am destroyed. That could be translated. I am cut off. I am ruined. When Job had a direct interaction with the Lord, he responded with these words from Job 42, 5, and 6. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The prophet Ezekiel had a similar response when he saw some measure of God's unrestricted presence. Ezekiel 1.28 says, Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. The reason why the disciples weren't like this all the time around Jesus is because he restricted his glory throughout the incarnation. That's what Paul teaches us in Philippians 2. He veiled his glory. He restricted it. The transfiguration was the lone exception. Jesus pulled back the veil of his flesh, as it were, to reveal his second coming glory. Not only that, the Father's presence was manifested in this bright cloud overshadowing them, and the Father spoke from heaven. This was too much. This was too much for the three disciples. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Verse 7 says, But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. Oh, the comforting hand of Jesus. Matthew specifically tells us that he touched them. Jesus touched them. The comforting hand of Jesus. What reassurance that gave these three men. They knew that hand. It was familiar to them. They had seen that hand minister to many sick people, demon-possessed people. They had seen that hand multiply bread and fish. They knew that hand. And not only the hand, but also the voice. Matthew says, Jesus touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. There is no reason to be afraid of God, even in all of His holiness, when you have Jesus as your mediator. There is no reason to be afraid of God, even in all of His holiness, when you have Jesus as your advocate. Without Jesus, we would have reason to be afraid of God. Rightly so. We ought to be afraid. Because our sin puts us in a position of being under His holy and righteous and just and deserved wrath. But Jesus is our propitiation. He is our protection. He doesn't protect us from a mean God. Don't get that idea in your mind. He doesn't protect us from a whimsical, capricious God. He protects us from a righteous, holy, just God. To say it another way, He protects us from what we deserve. So the disciples didn't need to be afraid. Jesus was with them. 
if you stand in the presence of the thrice holy God of the universe on your own merit, you ought to be afraid. You don't have a chance on your own. I don't have a chance on my own. But if the Lord Jesus Christ is with you, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus was there with his men, so they didn't need to be afraid. And verse 8 tells us, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah were gone. They had played their role in this heavenly drama. They came there as a reinforcement of the fact that both the law and the prophets had stated that the Messiah had to die. The disciples needed this kind of strong, convincing because they had a completely different perspective of what the law and the prophets had said. They blocked from their minds. They eliminated from their minds the passages about the death of the Messiah, and they only held on to the ones that stated the Messiah would bring in the kingdom. So they needed to see beyond any shadow of a doubt that the upcoming death of Jesus would not disqualify him as being the Messiah. On the contrary, it would validate him as the Messiah. But the disciples also needed to be reassured that the upcoming death of Jesus would not cancel out the kingdom promises. Jesus would return someday as the glorious king just as he had promised, just as they had seen him. And he is going to establish the promised kingdom. All of this, all of this was communicated to the disciples in this historic encounter. And beloved, it truly was historic. Three different times in this brief description, Matthew uses the word behold. Verse 3, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them. Verse 5, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Verse 5, and behold, translated suddenly in the New King James Version, but it's the same Greek word, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud. Three times. Matthew uses this word to show how monumental this event was, how historic it was. We don't know how long this lasted, but it seems that it was only for a short while. Just long enough for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to have this conversation about Jesus dying, showing that it was the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets, and then the event was over. That was it. Yet what happened in those few moments on that mountain would have a profound and lasting impact on Peter, James, and John. They would never forget it. And Peter was still talking about it 35 to 40 years later. That is what is behind our text in 2 Peter 1. Let's go back there to see what Peter says now about that event. <clears throat> 2 Peter 1, and we fast forward, as I just mentioned, 35 to 40 years later. As Peter nears the end of his life, and he writes to encourage his readers and us, by extension, whoever would read this letter. And he says this in verse 16, 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Why does Peter say this? Why does he say, we haven't followed cunningly devised fables? Because Peter knew that his readers would face ridicule for believing that Jesus is going to come back someday in power and glory. This is specifically stated over in chapter 3. Lord willing, we'll see this a few weeks down the road when we get to chapter 3, that Peter says, you will be ridiculed. There will be mockers who will mock you for holding on to and believing that Jesus is coming back. So not only did Peter's readers face such ridicule, so do believers today. When we hold to and proclaim and trust in the fact that Jesus is coming back someday, you know what the response is in general in society. We are marginalized. We are ignored, even made fun of by many people in society. They, they, they accuse us of believing in a pie-in-the-sky religion. Oh, you're just waiting for some event to finally fix everything. They accuse us of being escapist in our thinking. They accuse us of believing in fairy tales, myths, just made-up religious stories. This has gone on since the first century. Peter faced it. His readers faced it. We face it today. And that is what Peter is referring to here. That's what prompted him to write these words. He basically says this. Listen, we aren't believing a myth when we say that Jesus is coming back someday in power and glory. We saw his second coming glory with our own eyes. And that is exactly what Peter saw in the transfiguration. He was given a preview of the glory that Jesus will display in the second coming. So he reassures his readers that they aren't following myths. They aren't following fables. They aren't following fairy tales. The reality of the second coming of Jesus is based on the word of Jesus himself. And Jesus confirmed that word in a tangible way, historic way, by giving Peter, James, and John a preview in the transfiguration. So Peter repeats what he saw and heard, verse 17. He says, for he, referring to Jesus, he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter reminds his readers that God the Father spoke out of the glorious cloud that overshadowed them on that occasion. That was the Shekinah glory of God the Father that was overshadowing them. Again, beloved, I, I encourage you to, to try to think, just try to grasp with your mind how overwhelming that experience would have been. The experience of seeing the transfiguration would have been amazing enough. But to hear God the Father speak from heaven would have been terrifying and awe-inspiring at the same time. I mean, you know what it's like when you hear a voice, you hear someone speaking, and you don't know where it's, it's coming from? I mean, you know, you, your mind tells you, well, it's maybe someone's behind the wall over here in another room, but it's a little bit unnerving to hear a voice talking, and you can't quite place where it's coming from. But when you know where it's coming from, and it's coming from heaven, and you know it's God the Father, that's even more terrifying. 
That's what these men experienced. The experience, they, they heard God the Father speak. And when God the Father spoke, he, what did he say? He affirmed the deity of Jesus. To refer to Jesus as my beloved son, this is my beloved son, is clearly a statement of deity. All you have to do is compare this with John 5, where Jesus claimed God as his father, and the Jewish people understood exactly what he's saying because they tried to stone him. He said, why are you stoning me? What, for which of my good works are you stoning me? And they said, we're stoning you because when you claim God as your father and that you are the son of God, you are claiming to be God, you deserve to die for that. They knew exactly what he was claiming. And that is exactly what this statement affirmed. If there were any doubts in the minds of Peter, James, and John about the deity of Jesus, and there could have been doubts in their minds. After all, they were Jewish men. Jewish men who had been taught since they were knee-high to a grasshopper, there is only one true God. And so this concept of Jesus being deity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that was incredibly difficult for Jewish men to embrace and believe. So if there were any doubts in their minds about the deity of Jesus, the Father's statement would have removed those doubts. Peter says here in verse 17, the Father honored and glorified the Lord Jesus on that occasion. And then verse 18, Peter says, and we heard this voice. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. As I mentioned earlier, Peter wrote these words about 35 to 40 years after he had seen the glorious transfiguration. But he could remember it as if it had just been yesterday. He could still hear those powerful words ringing in his ears, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It had a profound and lasting impact on him. You know what that's like. You can think back to some experience in your life that was truly life-changing. And it doesn't matter how long ago it took place, whether it was last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if it's truly life-changing, you can remember it as if it were yesterday. You remember every detail about it. It's just a vivid imprint in your mind, in your heart. That's what this was for Peter. It had, a, had such a profound impact on him. He reminds his readers, 35 to 40 years later, he reminds his readers of this event to assure them that they are not believing a myth by believing that Jesus will come again someday in power and glory. They aren't believing a fairy tale. They aren't believing a fable. And beloved, neither are you. Neither are you. This world may ridicule us or make fun of us or ignore us or consider us gullible for believing that Jesus will come again in glory, power, majesty, and judgment, but we are not following a cunningly devised fable. No, we are not. Our confidence is based on the word of Jesus himself and on the sneak preview that Jesus gave to Peter, James, and John. So be faithful. You're not believing a myth. You're not believing a fairy tale. You are believing the truth of the inspired, inerrant word of the living God. Let's bow together as we close.
As you bow your head, close your eyes this morning in the few minutes that remain, just take a moment to think about, contemplate what you have seen in God's Word this morning. Matthew's account of the transfiguration and Peter's comments on it here in his own letter. And think about how easy it is in our society, in our day and age. We live in an educated society, educated world. It's easy to bend to the pressure of those who say, well, you're gullible if you believe that stuff in the Bible. You know, you're really pretty naive if you take all that literally. If you take it as historical fact, there's a pressure we feel as Christians living in 21st century America or in the 21st century of, of this world. A pressure to somehow bend or give in to what is considered intellectually credible as if Scripture isn't. And the whole point for Peter writing these words is to assure us and give us confidence that we're not believing in religious myth, religious fable, religious fairy tale. We're believing fact. We're believing truth. We're believing history. And we're believing prophecy. We're believing what God has said. We dare not waver from it. No matter how much pressure we feel, how much we are ridiculed, Peter's entire point in writing these words was to encourage us to be faithful, to not swerve, to not get sidetracked, to not bend to the pressure. Just be faithful. Believe what God has said. Jesus is coming back someday. He's coming back in glory, in majesty, and in judgment. And those who have rejected him will face his judgment. And that is absolutely certain. So if you're here today without Christ, that means you. If you are still in that condition of not knowing Jesus Christ, not submitting to Christ, then when he returns, you will face his judgment. It's not a threat. It's not manipulation. It's a fact. Just as there are facts of history, it is a certain fact of the future. So I urge you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Ask him for his salvation. Ask him for his forgiveness. Ask him to take you and make you the man, the woman he wants you to be. Turn to Jesus Christ today. Father, thank you for the confidence that your word inspires in our hearts, the confidence it gives us. It is difficult standing for Christ in our day and age. It is so easy to bend to the pressure, and it's easy to be intimidated by those who say, Believing your word is just myth, fairy tale. Uh, But we see so many passages like this that give us assurance that what we believe is fact, what we believe is truth. So we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful until the day Jesus comes. And so in closing, we pray for anyone who is gathered here with us this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus, who has not surrendered to him. May your Holy Spirit draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to surrender to Jesus Christ before it's too late. And we pray these things in his matchless and powerful name. Amen.